0: Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, your host coming to you from New York City. Uh, each week we try to look at somebody who's written a book that we think is noteworthy and uh, worth reading. And this week uh, we are very fortunate to be joined by Frank Figluzzi, Frank, 25 year FBI veteran. Somebody may be familiar to you from many, many appearances as a thoughtful commentator on MSNBC. Uh, ran when he was in the FBI's assistant director, the counterintelligence division, held a variety of other posts. And over the course of that career, gleaned um, insights into the culture that that makes the FBI exceptional and has tried to translate those as a former senior government official and as a former and current CEO of different organizations. uh, I know one of the greatest challenges is trying to characterize uh and communicate cultural values this book does that extremely well no matter what you do if you read the book it'll make you better at doing it and if you lead an organization um it'll it'll help you uh in that task so frank let me begin with congratulations
1: Thanks, David. And I'm glad we could have this discussion. I I never envisioned when I wrote this book that we'd be releasing it in the middle of a national crisis, to which the book is also applicable. And and here we are. And I think some of the book is, uh, the reason the book is resonating with people is because it not only helps on a personal level, not just a corporate business level, but now on a national level with regard to the question of how do we preserve as any entity, including a nation, what matters most to us? And the, the message in the book is there's something to be learned for how the FBI protects and preserve, it preserves its core values, its code of conduct, not only for your family, your community, your company, but now your country. Yeah,
0: you know, I think, you know, that's one of the things that struck me. You know, uh, you talk in the book, as many, many people have over the course of history about um, taking oath to the Constitution and uh, the, 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 the job of the FBI in terms of um, protecting and upholding the Constitution. And I think for many people, for most of their lives, that has seemed rather abstract. It has seemed like, you know, an ideal. It has seemed like the pro forma thing to say. Um, but we, in the past several years, and particularly in the past several weeks, have seen how precarious an undertaking democracy is, how important it is to uphold the rules, um, and how at risk we are when people don't. And and in the midst of all of that, we've also seen that the FBI plays a vital role in protecting that democracy. It's not just about solving um, crimes. And and I, I suspect that's why the book is, is doing well. Do you find that that's what's resonating?
1: Yeah, I think this notion that's contained in the second uh, full chapter of the book, I, I uh, for those who haven't read the book yet, the chapters are based on what I call the seven C's of values-based leadership, protecting what matters most. And, this, and the second C in that, deliberately placed uh, high up in the order of the book, is something called conservancy. And so what you're touching on is really what conservancy is about, this notion that it's collectively... All of our jobs, it's a team sport to try and preserve what matters most. And I think so often, not only in our companies, but in our country, we think it's someone else's job to preserve our constitution. In in a company, I do a lot of corporate consulting. When I walk into a company, I'll sometimes ask an employee, who here is responsible for standards, integrity, compliance? And they'll point down the hall to some office called uh, compliance or audit staff, Right. And, and in the FBI, one of the messages in the book is, yeah, yeah, they, they have that. In fact, I, I led some of those efforts in the FBI. But the reality is every single FBI employee is taught that they are a steward of the FBI's core values. They're accountable not only for themselves, but for the conduct of the employee sitting next to them. That's something that's very rare in today's society. And I would assert that the people who breached security at the Capitol on January 6th, we're certainly not being conservators of our core values.
0: No, certainly not. Um, And to the extent to which any of the people involved in law enforcement helped them um, uh, or may have been involved in that, uh, their conservancy obligations were even more egregiously violated. Um, I would say for people who uh, might look at a book like this and say, well, here we've got a former FBI special agent defending the bureau um, um, and this is going to be a reflexive exercise and aren't we great this book is not that and um, I you know just to take three examples that have been in the news recently um, when you deal with um, James Comey or you deal with Peter Strzok or you deal with uh, Andrew McCabe you deal with them you know within the confines of these values and reach completely different conclusions Um, maybe you want to talk about that a little bit, but I I was struck by the fairness of the book.
1: Yeah. I think if if people think there, this is a book about how wonderful and perfect
0: the FBI is,
1: they've got the wrong book. In fact, in, in the, one of the seven C's, one of the chapters of the book is called credibility. And my, my assertion there is credibility is not about being perfect, earning credibility, earning trust with your team, your people, your citizens is about transparency when you get it wrong. It's about how you deal with your mistakes. Do you announce them? Do you come clean with how you're going to fix what went wrong? That is what gets you credibility and trust, not a veneer of perfection. So within the book, as you said, I deal head on with Jim Comey, a man of incredibly high integrity and good faith intentions a guy you'd like living next door to you, you'd ask him to watch the kids while you're running an errand, right? But he he still erred in judgment and it and it impacted the, the precious reputation of the Bureau. The, the Bureau lives and dies by its brand, its perception amongst the public. If they're knocking on doors, asking for help, as they're doing nationally right now to try and stop the next act of domestic terrorism, and a citizen has to halt for a moment and wonder if he can trust that agent with those credentials on this other side of the door, then we've all got a problem. And the problem is centered on credibility. Jim Comey, for example, when he called that infamous press conference with the flags draped behind him at FBI headquarters and he pronounced, quote, no reasonable prosecutor would ever prosecute Hillary Clinton for the emails, Um, he forgot his role as a conservator of the FBI's reputation. He also forgot he was accountable You know, there are consequences, another chapter in the book. There are consequences to not being held accountable. He his boss was the attorney general of the United States. And whether he trusted her or not, at the time, he forgot that he was not a prosecutor. The FBI does not make prosecutive decisions. And that's where things went sideways. And and he actually handed President Trump an excuse for not only firing him, but but even more importantly for, for history, bashing the FBI for the next four years. Yeah, I do treat uh, Strzok and McCabe differently in the book, and, and here's why. And again, credibility in your organization, your family, is about tre- treating people equitably, fairly, especially when it matters the most. Like in a, in, a, in a disciplinary decision, when you're contemplating firing someone, you better adhere to your processes, precedent, and policy, or there will lack credibility. In what you're doing. And that's what I say about the termination of Andy McCabe. I don't weigh in on whether, because because I can't, on whether he actually lied to investigators or not about what an acting director or deputy director can and can't do when he talks to the media. Personally, I believe an acting director or deputy director has almost complete license on what he does with the media, but nonetheless, let's let's assume he lied. I don't know that. But I know this from my work inside the FBI, sitting on the Senior Executive Service Disciplinary Board, heading up the Office of Professional Responsibility Adjudication Unit, Um, being the Chief Inspector of the FBI at one time in my career, I know you don't get terminated at any level with 26 hours to go before retirement by orders of the Attorney General of the United States. That does not happen. That's a political intervention into the process. And therefore, I say that termination lacked credibility. With regard to Pete Strzok, I took a big hit on my social media following when I went on TV and said, early on, as soon as those infamous texts and emails with Lisa Page came out, I said, look, he's going to get fired. And he needs to get fired because a senior executive in the the bureau that's overseeing arguably the largest or most important FBI case in history, the Russia inquiry, can't be caught talking on FBI devices to his mistress about how biased and partisan he is regarding the possible subject of the investigation. If you don't fire him, you can't fire the low-level employee in Mobile, Alabama for doing the same thing.
0: Today, there was a, a tragic uh, a shooting in Sunrise, Florida, two FBI agents uh, dead, uh, three others uh, injured. Um, we talk a lot about the FBI in the context of the Trump years at, at, at a kind of 35,000-foot level. But this is the day-to-day reality of, of the FBI. And the, the, this is, these are the stakes every day, many, many times a day. And I'm wondering what your reaction is to this news.
1: I woke up to this news uh, this morning, and I have to tell you that it's a tragedy on several levels, and and it's, it's, it's particularly personal for me. I spent five years as an executive manager in FBI Miami, the field office uh, where this occurred. And I can tell you um, a couple of things. One is FBI agents get out of bed every morning simply trying to protect their communities, and you may never know what goes on behind the scenes and you're not supposed to know, but they make it a safer place to live. And the other thing um, that's that's many people don't understand is what we're hearing from press releases is that this was the execution of a warrant uh, in the Crimes Against Children program, meaning almost always um, the production distribution of child pornography on a, on a federal level. And those are extremely high risk, Warrant execution. And you may say, well, why is that? This isn't a murderer. This isn't. Here's the deal with these warrants. When you come down and confront someone for child pornography, you are essentially bringing an end to their reputation in the community. Child pornography and, and the scourge that it is cuts across socioeconomic levels in society. So do- I've seen doctors, lawyers, clergy, teachers, professionals arrested for this. And their whole world comes crashing down because they're being outed finally as among the most heinous criminals in our society. The the, the lowest thing, I've dealt with murders, terrorism, spies, the the lowest thing I've ever seen humanity capable of is the systematic exploitation of children. And, And so when you crash into that reality of that person's world, they have nothing left to lose. And so those are very high risk arrests. And we saw today a tragic day in FBI history. And ironically, it's happened again in the FBI Miami office, meaning the worst day in FBI history was actually way back in the 80s, when two agents were killed, a number of others were gravely wounded in a hellacious shootout with dangerous bank robbers. And once again, um, we've had we're having this happen again, in South Florida.
0: Today, also, we have the cases being sort of laid out regarding the president's impeachment trial. And uh, we, we've seen the house manager's case. Uh, and 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 really, within an hour prior to us having this conversation, we, we've, we've started to see the, the Trump defense. The Trump defense turns on First Amendment issues. Essentially, they're saying the president uh, had every reason to believe that the results of the election were fraudulent, had every reason to say this, had every reason and had every right to go out um, and uh, stand a couple of blocks from the Capitol and, and say what he said. Um, quite apart from the issues of what his team's planning role in this was, how long he had been laying the predicate for this and all these other things. When I heard this, I thought, you know had this been foreign terrorists or had a foreign actor instigated this would would anybody have dared respond you know with you know these kind of uh first amendment issues what's your reaction to a first amendment defense for inciting a crowd to insurrection in the way that this unfolded
1: well, you know, fa- famously, you you know the cliche: you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. And essentially, that is what not only Trump but his circle have been doing for uh, since the election results came in. So this notion, I find it interesting. I find that if this is where his defense is going, it's a, it's actually a, a fascinating defense that I'd love to see them try. Here's why: it's a, it's a def- it's a, it's essentially an admission masquerading as a defense. And what I mean by that is, if you're going to say, you know, I didn't commit an insurrection, I didn't incite an insurrection, I was simply trying to convince an angry mob that the outcome of the election was fraudulent, and that they needed to fight like hell to correct it. Well, that's essentially an admission that you did incite an insurrection, because here's why. There is no legitimate evidence that the election was anything but valid, it's been challenged in courts in every single key, key swing state. Um, and there is no evidence of massive fraud or any fraud that would overturn the outcome of the election. So in, in essence, you're saying, um, yeah, I did incite insurrection because I'm trying to convince people they needed to fight for their democracy when there was no legitimate basis to do it. So I say, knock yourself out. Now with regard to the, with regard to the comparison to international terror, look, we radic- on the international terrorism side, I've seen radicalization occur very quickly, online through the through the repeated watching of violent sermons um, by clerics in in the in the, the offshoots of the of the Islamic faith, um, and you you see a steady diet of that moves you to violence. So I've seen very little difference over what I've seen over the last four years in terms of the radicalization process, and what um, I saw in the international terrorism world.
0: Um. Yeah, and as you well know, you're an attorney uh, also, but as you well know, uh, the the line that you're quoting about a crowded theater comes from a decision by Justice Holmes uh, in the first part of the last century. And what you're prohibited from doing is shouting uh, fire when there isn't a fire in, in a crowded theater, right? It, uh, and 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 I think that's the point here is that they're trying to say, there was a fire but 60 courts have determined there was no fire and nobody in the course of you know the past 2 months has produced a shred of evidence to suggest that there was
1: right that's spot on and that's why i actually hope that he that he launches that defense because he's going to say i was shouting fire and and the def- and the, the prosecution will say there was no fire and you knew that so it's it's going to be an interesting scenario
0: so um, it does bring us to the, to the next hurdle here, because when you were handling uh, uh, counterintelligence, when you were out in the field and you were handling terrorism cases, and there's some great uh, sort of uh, pre and post 9-11 stories in the book, um, we, we sort of knew who the enemy was and we quickly arrayed to stop that enemy. Now... It appears that the greatest threats in the United States at the moment come from domestic extremists. They've been around for a while, but that we've had four years with the president of the United States cultivating them. Uh, and we seem, if you know, the news of the past couple of weeks is any indication, to have that former president and his party continuing to defend them to sort of value them as part of the base. Um, And so the question becomes, is our law enforcement apparatus properly set up to deal with this threat?
1: No, the the short answer, unfortunately, is no. Um, And that's why I've become an outspoken advocate for passing a domestic terrorism law. And let me uh, talk a bit about that. You're right, Um, domestic terrorism, and specifically hate-based violence is nothing new to our society. It's been woven through the fabric of our our history. But what's new is a couple of things. First, we now have law enforcement at the highest level in the form of the FBI director, Chris Ray, having testified in the past year at least twice on the Hill saying emphatically domestic terror, and more specifically hate-based violence is the number one threat facing the United States. Equally interesting, we've had the head of counterterrorism for the FBI a year or two ago, testify before the Homeland Security Committee and say, I don't have the tools um, to do this. And then I, I've written about this um, in my last column for MSNBC Daily. Um, we had two relatively new members of Congress at the time um, reveal their complete ignorance about domestic terrorism when they launched into this, head of counterterrorism for the FBI and said why do you keep arresting uh, black people um, and people of color for terrorism and and you don't arrest any white people for terrorism and he had to explain to them actually we don't arrest anybody for terrorism unless they're part of a designated international terrorism group or, or you know, we don't we don't have a domestic terrorism law ladies and gentlemen and then another member of that uh, committee says to him again revealing her ignorance um, well, How come you're not designating any white groups, domestic terror groups? And he goes, well, because there's no such way to do that. And you can see kind of light bulbs starting to go on. But we don't have a law against domestic terrorism. We define it in the U.S. code. It's fascinating. We have a definition of it. We don't outlaw it. It's the only criminal program in the FBI where they can investigate you for it, but they can never charge you with it. We have an international terrorism law. If you were to change the religion of the people going into the Capitol on January 6 to Islam and make their mission violent jihad, and even better, associate them with Al-Qaeda or ISIS, you now have an international terrorism law. They're going away for life, to prison, or even execution for the death of that officer. But better yet, David, there's a good chance that the capital insurrection would never have happened if these were international terrorists, why? Because tools exist when you when you have a law to point to, tools exist that allow you to get in early in the process and prevent things from happening. So you might even have a FISA wiretap on a chat room. You might be sending an informant into a, a group or organization. You might send an undercover agent in. I give the example of the El Paso shooter, a white kid from Texas. He's in a chat room talking about, violence against quote, the brown invaders, which happens to be Trump language. There's no undercover agent or informant in that chat room. What, when does the FBI show up? When there's a massacre at the Walmart in, in, in El Paso. That's too late in the process. And we've got to figure out a way to get people in earlier, get law enforcement some visibility earlier when people are talking about violence and not waiting for the violence to occur.
0: In the case, or just to carry the analogy a step further, what do you deal how do you deal with or how should one deal with in a in a domestic terrorism law how should we deal today with those who incite this who provide that language who are the same as the mullahs and the clerics who you know are putting out youtube videos and and you know because it's a complicated problem since as it turns out That includes the former president of the United States, a senator from Missouri, a senator from Texas, a representative from Georgia, a representative from Missouri. Um, They were all playing the exact same role that some of those incendiary clerics would play. How does the law deal with that?
1: Yeah, when you have people like Ted Cruz posting repeatedly things, even wearing Apparel that says "Come and take it," you know. When he's talking about his gun or his, his his democracy or whatever he's talking about, you have people like Lauren Bulbert who are strapped and carrying a Glock into Congress. Which, by the way, as an FBI agent and assistant director, I was I could not carry a weapon into the Capitol building when I was testifying before Congress. I had to surrender it to the Capitol Police. But yet, we have radicalizers who are who are armed and dangerous waltzing into uh, the Capitol building.
0: Yeah, Madison, so, caught, Madison Cawthorn bragged that he was, you know, he was packing during the- Yeah, conference.
1: yeah. And ju- just understand the threat that that poses, the hostile work environment that poses to the colleagues. But, but more importantly, tactically, you might say, wait a minute, as an FBI agent, you couldn't carry inside the Capitol? And here's why. I, I understood it tactically. You, you have to, if there's an incident, you have to know quickly who the bad guys are and the good guys are. So if some guy is pulling out a gun, um, maybe me, and the Capitol Police are starting to shoot, I, I'm a goner. And so they, they need to know who's properly identified as carrying. Um, and the easiest way to do that is to have only them carry. I
0: get that. I, 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 te- I take it you're not a fan of arming teachers in schools. Though, oh,
1: I, I am a huge opponent of arming teachers in schools. That, that's, all, that's all we need is somebody who doesn't know how to shoot or somebody who doesn't know how to secure their weapon. And a kid getting a hold of it, but but let's let, let's talk about holding people accountable because that's a large part of my book. Consequences is, is a chapter we talk about accountability. There has to be consequences for these radicalizers, and there has to be consequences for President Trump. So here's some good news. I have every reason to believe that within the scope of the FBI's current investigation into the insurrection. That they are looking at the role played, even by members of Congress who who may have allegedly uh, given tours um, to a certain planners uh, before um, the insurrection, and/or may have been involved or had knowledge of, even mere knowledge, David, of of these criminal acts, could get you an accessory uh, charge or aiding and abetting charge.
0: Do you think that? Um they will be held accountable?
1: I'm, I'm a cynic when it comes to holding a, a people accountable at, at that level. But I will, I will say this, if there's any hope or encouragement, there's every sign that finally, um, with the Biden administration, they are stepping out of the way and not politically interfering with DOJ and or the FBI. They're gonna let career professionals do their job that we pay them to do. And so if that happens, you know the very fact that the FBI is being permitted to even consider looking at the role these people may have played, um, and and allegedly reports of the night before a, a possible meeting at Trump Tower at, at uh, Trump Hotel in, in downtown DC, um, you know all of that has to be looked at. How could we not? How how could the FBI and DOJ remain credible and not look at this? So we need an independent commission, um, writ large, to look at. What the hell happened on January six? Um, you know that's kind of a s- similar but different topic um, because we can't have the the Congress investigating it itself. It, it, think about this: there's a there's going to be a Senate trial apparently um, for the impeachment of the president. Okay, have you ever seen a trial where the jury, in this case senators, some of them are victims? Uh, because they were they were almost killed uh, during the insurrection. And some of them are potential defendants. They may have aided and abetted the insurrection. And they're sitting on the jury. This makes no sense for me. This is why we need an independent commission into January 6th.
0: Yeah. You know, and, and I, I do think, by the way, an independent commission goes hand in glove with the notion of creating some kind of domestic terrorism law. Um, uh, because... You know, imagine that, you know, in the wake of 9-11, we didn't have the tools. And, and some of the tools, you know, that were developed in the wake of 9-11 may have been overreaching, but, but we responded. We said, this is a gap and we need to fill this gap. And here we've had this clear attack. And, and if these people, I mean, it, it, it looks like there is a substantial political constituency for assaulting the Capitol and assaulting the Constitution of the United States. Um, and and that only suggests to me that these problems are going to increase in the future and, and we've got to find a better way to deal with it.
1: Yeah, yeah, the, uh, the uh, <clears throat> it would be a, a fallacy to think that because Trump has left office, somehow this radicalized violent extremist group in America is going away. And you could actually argue, there's the potential for it to grow in the sense that the president is now totally unchecked, may start a digital media platform as extremists are being taken down off of and censored from their typical platforms and parlors searching for a home. What we're seeing is violent extremists migrating to encrypted platforms where law enforcement cannot see them and where they get only an amplified echo chamber of extremism. And one of the ways you de-radicalize on the on the international terrorism side is to keep exposing people to sunshine and truth. You can't do that if they're buried into the darkest recesses of the internet. So things could actually get worse, David. And I I you know you mentioned the post-9-11 and we did the Patriot Act. Don't forget, we created, we literally created a massive government bureaucracy called the Department of Homeland Security because of 9-11. We're doing nothing. Um, because of this domestic terrorism threat that threatens our democracy. And I know it's politically incorrect to say this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. On 9-11, we lost about 3,000 US citizens. It was tragic. It should never happen again. And thankfully, the tools are in place that have allowed no terrorist act to occur of any significance on US soil since then. But I'm telling you on January 6th, we almost lost our democracy. Um, And we haven't done anything yet that matches that. And yes, we should be concerned about civil liberties and privacy and freedom. Of course, I'm not suggesting we police ideology or thought. Absolutely not. And yes, um, there were some aspects of post 9-11 law enforcement work that I consider abuses. And in one case, famously, we had to rein rein it in. Um, That's the collection of phone record metadata, Uh, essentially. you know congress said look are you are you actually correct, uh, collecting everybody's phone bills i mean you got everybody's phone numbers dialed for every month er, everywhere and the answer was yes and not content but we got your phone bills your phone your phone numbers dialed and received yeah we don't like that that we're uncomfortable with that and we stopped it okay um, th- that those things are going to happen but we can do it with careful monitoring and and constraints
0: well you know you bring up a good point we didn't just create by the way the department of homeland security um uh we also created the office of director of national intelligence and the counterterrorism center all all at once it was the biggest restructuring of the u.s national security apparatus that had taken place since 1947 since the national security act of 1947 and um in almost every case we probably shouldn't have done it we probably should have just put more money into what we already had but you know um, there was a response. And in this case, there's a question whether there will be a response. We only have a little time left, but you brought up something I, I, just, I just feel compelled to follow up on. Because this does take us into a different area. And that is how society is being changed by technology. Because so much of this is happening on web-based platforms, some of which are dark web, some of which are completely unregulated by virtue of the way our laws are written right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, people accuse those sites of being media sites and that they should face similar regulations, but they're actually more than that because they're actually platforms for collaboration, encrypted collaboration. They, you know, they 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 they're platforms for sort of rewiring society. Do we, you know, in a place like the FBI, do we have the laws? Do we have the people? Do we have the know-how to deal with how this is changing, you know, these kind of threats?
1: This may be the key issue of our time in terms of the law enforcement and intelligence threat facing us, but it's way beyond that. If you're saying, "Ah, this sounds like some esoteric argument for, for lawyers and intelligence folks... Um, I'm here to tell you, if you have kids, if, you, if you're a teacher, if you have grandkids, th- this is the issue. And, and the bottom line is technology is, once again, way out in front of us on this, and it moves at the speed uh, with which you can press the send button or post a tweet, and we don't have our arms around this. And so it's requiring a unprecedented partnership between law enforcement, intelligence, and big tech. Um, but I would move a step further. We, we need educators to tell kids how to inf- intelligently consume information and where to get their sources and, uh, of information from. Um, and, you know, I, I liken it to look, look at uh, so the, the scenario presented by Silk Road, right? There's this dark web play. If I told you there's this place on the dark web um, where you can basically sell anything, including probably children, stolen, stolen credit card numbers by the thousands, um, you can order a kilo of cocaine and maybe get someone assassinated. It's, it's here in this dark web. Um, you'd say, okay, that needs to go. We need, we need, we need to take that down. And, and we did, um, but this is now happening largely out in the open. If I said to you, there's a place where your family members can get radicalized to violence in record time and be filled to the gills with falsehoods and fabrications, and start believing the earth is flat and cannibals and pedophiles run the world. Um, what do you think? Well, we should probably take that down. Yeah, we, that's but we haven't figured out how to do this, really. And it's, it's ironic that the capitalistic part of our society, the people who are live and die by profit margin, in this case, big tech, are going, hey, this is bad for business. We're not going to provide apps to parlor <laughs> because we don't want any part of this. It's, an, it's interesting, but it's, it shows you the holistic approach that's needed for this.
0: Well, and, and that includes they need to be held accountable. They need to have liability. We need to structure our laws that way. Um, I'm a little bit older than you, but both of us, when we were growing up, if there was a kind of strange guy at the end of the bar or in the school who didn't get along with anybody and seemed kind of dangerous, um, you know, you would have said, "Well, just one guy." You know, he was he was he was the quiet guy. You know, who always you know ends up in the headlines later. But the but the thing about the internet is it allows that guy to go out there and troll for other guys who are the same. And all of a sudden he goes, wait a minute, my crazy fantasy isn't a crazy fantasy anymore. My anger isn't just something inside of me. Here are 10,000 people that feel this right. and it gives them permission. And, and you know, to me, that's what we saw in part on January 6th, where a bunch of people who would never have had that permission, the president gave it to them, but the internet gave it to them first. To go and do this outrageous and unthinkable thing—it's
1: the mentality of the crowd that occurs at light speed on the internet that we've never experienced before. If all of these people believe like this, maybe there's something to it. And now I've joined something and feel a sense of belonging. And you know, kind of the uh, the, uh, the metaphor for this would be: remember over the summer all these boat parades for Trump and and uh, flying Trump flags on the water, and then for some reason in all these places boats that hadn't been out on the water for weeks started sinking, catching fire, right? That analogy is what's happening on on social media right now. The boats are out there, they're enjoying the sunshine with each other, flying their flags, and they're all slowly sinking and catching fire. And so the point being, even at your own peril, you believe things that are untrue and harmful to you. The notion that getting a vaccine is going to insert a chip into you uh, could get you killed because you're going to catch COVID. And so yet people are like, yep, uh, I, I'm not taking it. That's, that's the crowd mentality.
0: Yeah, it is the crowd mentality. Well, I think, you know, we've, we've, we've run out of time here, but listening to you, and, and I encourage everybody to go and read the book. It's a great book. And just as um, Frank is a clear communicator, um, uh, he presents this stuff in a really compelling and accessible way. But listening to you, you know, you know, it's almost as though the epilogue to your book—I I know you have an epilogue, but you know, epilogue number two—is that the Congress of the United States doesn't have the code; they don't have the code that you're talking. It should be the Constitution. It should be certain kinds of norms. But I guarantee you, somebody is going to put forth the thing that you've suggested, which is a domestic terrorism law, and half the Congress of the United States is going to oppose it because they think somehow trying to limit this threat is infringing on their free speech and their base. And that's that's the consequence of operating without a code.
1: Uh, sadly, I think you're right. Uh, and we'll watch it play out. I'll be calling it out loudly, so watch for that. Um, and yeah, you it's about their, they, they don't like this because it's about their speech that they're concerned about, and they've lost sight of the core values and protecting what matters most, the rule of law, the constitution, and three equal branches of, of government. We, we need a renewed commitment to truth. And um, sadly, it, it appears not to be happening.
0: Yeah, and all the other values you talk about. I mean, when, when you think about the obstructionist values-blind Congress, they ought to have a conversation about conservancy. You know, they ought, they, ought to, they ought to have the conversation about conservancy of the institutions that they have been hired by us.
1: Well, if, you know, let, let's talk about just briefly conservancy and Marjorie Taylor Greene. If Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene existed within the FBI ranks, she would become immediately a pariah and be, and be escorted out the door because the FBI sees itself as a conservator of its values and the nation's values. Watch and see if that happens to her in the House.
0: Yeah, Noel, well, but let's we 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 need we need to watch and see. Interestingly, Mitch McConnell came out against her yesterday, but there does seem to be a pariah Caucus in the Congress. So we'll see how the pariah Caucus defends her. Uh, in any event, Frank, congratulations on a terrific book. Um, also on the terrific work that you've been doing elsewhere, such as um, on MSNBC and writing, uh, writing for NBC. The book is called "The FBI Way." I encourage everybody to go out and get it. We don't do these author discussions with people who have written books we don't think are worth reading. Um, These are the ones that we think really are standouts. This book is a standout. Um, uh, Well done. Hope it does very well. Hopefully we can continue our conversation with you at some point um, in the future. Um, uh, But thank you very much for joining us now.
1: Thank you for the kind words, David, and thanks for a great discussion. Stay safe.
0: Same to you.